1: We're all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this.
0: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome hello. back. Hey. Good to see Good you. Good to be here. Uh, so, you know, my discussion a couple of weeks ago about the origin of life on Earth and all those chemicals necessary for life kind of got me thinking. existential crisis. That was, yeah. 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 It got me thinking about, uh, organisms that can survive in extreme environments like the early earth. Okay. Like extremophiles. Extremophiles. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I want to talk about this episode. Ooh. Um, so a little definition first, extremophiles are considered to be organisms, usually bacteria and archaea that live in extremes of temperature or salinity or pH, radiation, pressure, and energy or nutrient limitation, or some okay. combination okay. Yep. of several of those. Makes sense. Um, and actually up until 1969, the existence of extremophiles wasn't even known. It was thought oh, yeah, huh. it was thought that bacteria could only really thrive in environments that were pretty similar to those that other life forms survive in. So well, I would have I would have thought okay. it was
1: like prior to that that they had that kind of knowledge. That's no, interesting. Right? Yeah, it's
0: relatively recently, right? And so it was thought that below about 60 to 70 degrees centigrade, that's 140 to 160 Fahrenheit, it was thought that nothing could survive. But in 1969, a paper was published by a microbiologist named Tom Brock, uh, revealing his discovery of a bacterium that he found thriving in a Yellowstone hot spring.
1: Oh, gosh, I was just thinking about Yellowstone, like, (laughs) while you were talking about that, because I was just there. Okay.
0: Yeah. At temperatures above 77 degrees centigrade, and he named it, a very appropriate name, Thermus aquaticus, (laughs) meaning hot water, water. basically. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that one's a real stretch. Yeah. Ooh, yeah.
0: Wonder what it well, could be. Well, you know, you get there first, you get to get the good names.
1: Yep. Uh
0: <laughs> So that discovery really opened up a whole new area of research within microbiology and eventually led to the discovery of archaea mm. which originally right, were right. thought just to be a type of bacteria and you know, they look like bacteria. They're single-celled microorganisms. They don't have a nucleus. But it turns out that based on some things like the composition of their cell wall and their genetics, uh, they are in a totally different domain of life than yeah. bacteria. So just to, just to kind of give you a sense of what that really means, there are three domains of life. There is mm-hmm. the archaea, the bacteria, and the eukarya. And eukarya includes everything from uh, foxes to mushrooms to Birch trees to malaria parasites so
1: oh, i'm having i'm having flashbacks to my ta- when i talked about prokaryotic life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right go for it
0: yeah so the you the bacteria and archaea are both prokaryotes but they are completely different kinds of prokaryotes right, mm-hmm. right. yeah so they look similar but actually not bacteria not even close and many archaea are actually extremophiles as well as different types of bacteria so i just want to i just this is going to be one of those listicle episodes where i'm just going to talk about a bunch of weird places that bacteria and archaea can awesome. live i feel mm-hmm. like this love is it. sort of a love kirk it. special kind of thing but <laughs> i'm going to do it this time. maybe that's why i'm why very I love excited it. Yeah, yeah. so uh just just calling back to um some of the ones that we've talked about in previous episodes way back in episode 18 kirk you talked about a bacteria that lives all in its lonesome, two miles down in gold mines, and uh, survives based yeah. on the products of radiation down there.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, the, what a, that's one of the weirdest. <laughs> yes. Topics I've done. Yeah, so that's crazy,
0: bizarre. Yeah. Oof. I've I've talked before about the chemosynthetic bacteria that uh, form the base of the food chain at deep sea hydrothermal vents, and some of the bacteria mm-hmm. there can survive. That's a biggie at high pressures, you know, bottom of the ocean, and temperatures up to
1: 122
0: degrees centigrade. That's well above the boiling point of water. Just for you folks to keep a track at home. Yeah. Um, And those Yellowstone hot springs that were the source of Tom Brock's discovery of Thermus aquaticus, there have been many other species discovered at Yellowstone since then. Um, They survive at various extreme levels of heat and acidity. Bacteria have been found living in the calderas of volcanoes. Uh, yeah. They're, yeah. Some of the most acidic places on Earth are um, the outflow from mines. There's acid mm. mine drainage and bacteria live in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The pH really? can be as low as one, Whoa. which is... <laughs> Uh, sulfuric As acid. <laughs> yeah,
1: and they're like, cool. "Oh, this is so nice, this is pleasant. little pleasant sulfuric acid bath." Just oh. wanted to be so today. Yeah, it's cleansing at the end of the day. Yeah,
0: and to go to the other end of the pH scale, there are of course bacteria that also thrive in highly alkaline environments, like soda lakes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these can live at pHs up to 12, which is somewhere between an ammonia solution and bleach.
1: Right. Yeah. So, you
0: know, not too comfortable for us either, but they love it. Uh,
1: (laughs) Not too comfortable is like the most gross, like, understatement you could possibly make. Yeah.
0: I'm
2: pretty sure it's the definition of grossly uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fatal. Yeah. Okay. Good.
0: There are microbes that live in the coolant water at nuclear power plants, so very high levels of radiation. Okay. Um, Obviously, we've talked about things that can survive in the vacuum and radiation and extreme temperatures of space. There are bacteria, Mm -hmm. many bacteria that have survived um, that. Once some scientists sort of accidentally, they're doing some pressure experiments, they accidentally sort of amped up the pressure on some E. coli bacteria, which are normally found in our guts, and they squeezed them to a pressure of 16 atmospheres, and they survived. Oh.
1: Did you, I'm sorry, did you say accidentally? Yeah. How do you do
0: that by accident? (laughs) Right. (laughs) doesn't seem like... I think they put the setting a little too high on the pressure squeezer in the lab. (laughs) Clearly.
1: (laughs) Wow. Okay, there's, wow, there's more of a story there, but okay, go on.
0: (laughs) Another episode, perhaps. Yeah. Um, not too long ago I also talked about bacteria that survive in the extreme, extremely arid conditions of the central Atacama Desert. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. so there's basically never rainfall except, you know, now climate change there is. Yeah. But uh and they think that's kind of like a, a suggestion that bacteria could survive there it means they might be able to survive on Mars, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh scientists have extracted bacterial spores from the gut of a 40 million year old bee that was preserved nice. in amber. Nice. And they That's were... some Jurassic park level stuff. Yeah. right there. Yeah, it is. So bacterial spores are like, uh, yes, yeah, totally Jurassic park level stuff. Bacterial spores are a, a kind of an extra hardy, um, survival mechanism that some bacteria can do where they, uh, uh, basically, remove almost all the water from the cell and and just kind of. Yeah, it's
1: like cryptobiosis, like we talked about with yeah. the uh, sea monkeys. Yeah, yeah.
0: exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were able to revive these bacterial spores and then they reproduced. Seems like. That seemed a like the start of idea. some kind of outbreak movie.
1: Yeah, it does. i yeah. yeah.
2: like, that. Have they watched. I actually... No, I know scientists who do that kind of stuff tend to watch those movies. They get a kick out of them. Yeah. <laughs> Why?
0: They're like, this is so bad. This is not how it is at all. Exactly.
1: Right. <laughs> we hope. And then
0: yeah. they go and do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are microbes that live in the Dead Sea and other extremely salty environments. And mm-hmm. for some salty. reason, you know, I, this, this one I'm about to say is the one I found kind of the most surprising i don't know why but there are microbes that live in tar pits like the famous la brea tar pits in los angeles what? Huh. okay
1: sure that, i mean that that doesn't i guess i hadn't really thought about it but it's not too surprising I mean, seems, hydrocarbons and
0: it seems like i don't know it seems like a more toxic environment than they are tar pits yeah
1: it's a lot to feed on though yeah
0: it's yeah. true
2: yeah they're petroleum-eating bacteria.
1: Right, yeah. yeah. Hmm. A lot of petrochemicals.
0: <laughs> so that's, that's quite a list. And, you know, there's, there's more that I didn't even cover. I didn't get into nutrient and energy limitations, really. But the thing is, what I find so interesting thinking about this is that what we consider an extreme environment is mm-hmm. really... Perfectly normal to the bacteria and archaea that live in these environments. Right,
1: right, yeah, and we can't live there. Yeah, and
0: as I kind of alluded to uh, in my previous episode, over the course of the Earth's history, you know, extremophiles would have been probably the first life forms, and over the course of the Earth's history, these kind of extremophile organisms have been the dominant life form. Mm-hmm. most likely right. for, for big chunks of the earth's history. So, you know, it's, it's really from a human perspective that we call them extremophiles.
1: Right. They just call us. Yeah, I find it, I yeah. find it funny when people, people try to make the argument that when they say like, isn't it amazing that like the earth is perfectly, you know, like the perfect place for humans. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 that's backwards. Like, like, we we if it wasn't here. we wouldn't be here yeah like you know but if it wasn't like you're saying if it was a much more well i i was gonna say hostile but say a hotter place or a more acidic place mm-hmm. different forms of life would have evolved and they'd be sitting around thinking like man how could life ever survive if it was like 70 degrees outside yeah. isn't that crazy it's like Nuts. that's just mm-hmm. life finds a way right
0: it does uh yeah that's what I have. I want to um, give a shout-out to a couple of sources that I drew from this week. Uh, one is a paper from uh, April 2019 in Frontiers in Microbiology, and it's called Living at the Extremes, Extremophiles and the Limits of Life in a Planetary Context by Nancy Marino and her colleagues. And then an article from Smithsonian Magazine called Top 10 Places Where Life Shouldn't Exist But Does. <laughs> nice that's a good title i like that that's a good one yep all right well we're gonna have a little break and when we come back from the break Kirk will be up
1: that's right Yeah. yeah Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strange by nature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the society of strange at patreoncom slash strange by nature. See you soon. Welcome back. You know, like most of us, I was raised on a steady diet of terrifying German folk tales, uh, yes. thanks to the Brothers Grimm. So we've got uh, yeah the wolf and the seven young goats. Uh, spoiler alert: they get eaten.
2: Yeah. Uh, there
1: was also Little Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. Spoiler: Granny gets eaten. Uh, and then yep. there's the wolf and the man. Uh, the wolf and the fox. Uh, spoiler, the greedy wolf dies in that one. Mm. Uh, there's also another one in Brothers Grimm Tales, the uh, the gossip wolf and the fox. And actually in this one, I feel kind of bad for the wolf because fox plays a trick on her. And she ends up having boiling hot lye water, like uh, wash water poured on her by oh peasants. Oh my gosh. Giving, giving her like a terrible chemical burn while the fox kind of laughs at her. Um Rude. So... Did I, did I mention these are uh, German children's stories? Yeah, I'm sensing
0: yeah. a theme yeah. with these.
1: I am, cute. You are. You are. So, you know, in the Grimm Brothers' defense, though, I will say that um, even back when their, their book came out um, and they called them children's stories, a lot of people were outraged <laughs> that they were too graphic <laughs> for children. Uh, they did actually relent. And in one of the later editions, they removed a number of stories, including one called The Children Who Played Slaughtering. <laughs> Which is not what not I read who as a child. Played, you know, what?
2: Slaughtering? Slaughtering. Like,
1: slaughtering. E, like, yes.
2: E, e, e. Slaughter, yes. Oh Murdering my
1: God. animals and disemboweling them. Yeah. I, could, I, I have to look it up. I didn't actually read that story. I, now I'm kind of curious. But. <laughs> My my point of talking about all that is that um, in nearly all the old stories told, and not just in Europe, but in many cultures, but not all of them, but in many cultures, the wolf is the bad guy in the story, mm-hmm. right? So we humans seem to have a real talent for vilifying wolves, or at least just having them be tortured in stories. Um, and so in these stories, the wolves aren't bad guys for doing what wolves actually do. no usually they're, they're a proxy for the worst of human nature. And so we project our our worst traits onto wolves. Exactly. So they're kind of a proxy for, sure. yeah, like terrible humanity. But I think because it's so pervasive in our culture, even those of us who like wolves still have an image of them in our heads as like super fierce predators. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, they are amazing hunters and predators, But we probably over-exaggerate in our minds what a wolf is like because of a lot of the cultural representations of these, like, bloodthirsty animals, right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, my little dear 30-pound dog, Ada, is the biggest snuggle bug cutie in the world. So cute. Uh, But, yeah, but she also caught and bit the head off a squirrel the other day. So (laughs) Of course she did. it seems... It seems strange to me that, like, we think of dogs as being mostly cute and snuggly Mm -hmm. when they're perfectly capable of doing these things, but somehow wolves are like vicious killing machines, right? Exactly. Now, the three of us all live in Minnesota, and one awesome distinction of our state is that while everyone else was busy successfully exterminating wolves from their states, we failed. Yay, us. Uh So, at one point, aside from Alaska, Minnesota was, I believe, the only state in the you know the US again besides Alaska to still US. have gray wolves yeah or timber wolves well the lower 48 right um yeah they weren't in Hawaii good point <laughs> um so you know we, we're the only ones to have wolves left aside from Alaska uh it was estimated at one point there was only 350 wolves left in the state but current estimates mm. are that we have 2700 wolves in Minnesota mm. Cool. So, by, by the way, um, Alaska does still have us beat because uh, it's Alaska's huge. Uh yeah. They currently are estimated to have eighteen thousand wolves.
0: That's quite a bit more.
1: It's a oh. lot, and I was curious about this, so I did some math. The human population of Alaska <laughs> is only seven hundred thirty-seven thousand people. <laughs> so uh, that is. I wasn't one expecting that
2: thousand. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's more than seven hundred thirty-seven people. I know. Uh, the uh, the, what that works out to is one wolf to every 40 people, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. <laughs> nice. Um, we, now, we have far less wilderness here and far more people. The population of our state is 5.6 million people, which means there's one wolf for every 2,000 people. Mm. Uh, so quite a difference. I was just curious, uh, Victoria and Rachel, have either of you ever seen a wolf in the wild in, in, in Minnesota?
0: I've never seen a wolf in the wild. I've seen them in captive contexts.
1: Gotcha. Rachel? Um, You're up in wolf country now.
2: I am up in wolf country now. Um, I'm with Victoria. I haven't seen one in the wild. I've seen signs, though. Um, Just the other day, uh, we found some uh, wolf scat. We're pretty sure it was wolf scat.
1: It was very furry. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, you mentioned wolf uh, scat, and I was going to say that that kind of ties into my story because we think oh, of wolves well, as being ferocious meat eaters, mm-hmm. but biologists wanted to better understand their <gasps> diet. So They did something I referenced. I know referenced.
2: what you're t- talking about today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I referenced way back in an episode last year when I talked about learning more about the diets of mountain lions uh-huh. and they did the classic, classic move of studying that lovely substance that starts with an S mm-hmm. and ends with a T, comes out <laughs> yeah. of you, comes out of me. I know what you're thinking, but don't think that. We're scientists, we call it
2: Scat. Scat.
1: Exactly. So in 2017, a team of researchers at Voyageurs National Park in Minnesota did the dirty work of checking scat piles to figure out exactly what wolves were eating. Uh And it turns out sometimes the answer is surprisingly berries. Yeah. I just learned this. Yeah. Specifically, sometimes raspberries, but here in Minnesota, mostly blueberries. Mm -hmm. Now, how many? How many, you ask? Well, I actually found conflicting numbers, uh, but in Minnesota in July and August, which is berry season, researchers believe blueberries make up somewhere around 30 to 50 percent of a wolf's diet. <laughs> that's, a mm-hmm. I, that's a lot of berries. And that's a lot of berries because they're really small. Mm-hmm. And I did find one source claiming it might be as high as 83% of their diet. Yep. But I, I didn't actually see that number backed up any actual research. It was just like a reference on a w- webpage about wolves from a, a wolf group. So I'm, by I the way, sure.
2: bringing this back because we 100% have said 83% at the nature center that I work at
1: yeah so i want to know where that came from because like the actual research papers i was reading were saying 30 to 50 percent and then they'd reference the research paper and say it's as high as 83 percent you're like that's not what the research paper says so Mm. very curious where they're getting that number from so i want to actually read a passage from the research uh, journal article uh, which by the way is called uh, estimating biomass of berries consumed by gray wolves and this was in the wildlife society bulletin in 2017 so here it goes. You ready? Mm-hmm. Scats were collected on trail and logging roads at home sites and at clusters of GPS locations. We transferred individual scats to nylon stockings and sterilized them by boiling in water for greater than 45 minutes. Ew. We then washed the Gross. scats in a washing machine. What? And allowed them to air dry for greater than 12 hours. So. Hold on. I'm just really wondering, first off, who's stove and pot did they use (laughs) to boil them in nylon stockings for 45 minutes? And what did that smell like? Uh, That's
2: just to sanitize. I really hope that was
1: done outdoors. I hope that was. uh, Well, I don't. They didn't say how fresh the scat was. But at that point, when you're going to rehydrate them, I'm not sure it really matters. Yeah. Although, uh, I, like, I know from all of the coyotes scat we find on a day-to-day basis where I work, if they're really old, they're basically just piles of fur. Yeah. Right? So, like, I, I think they were fairly fresh. Um, oh. This is lovely. So, I was thinking about this, and I'm like, secondly, I said, you know, first off, what what pot do they use? But also... Secondly, whose washing machine that's, did they that's use? That's where
2: I'm at, stuck here. <laughs>
1: right? Like, did they just stroll down to the public laundromat? Because that's not okay. No. And did they <laughs> did they use, like, the staff one at a research station? Which is probably way more likely. And yikes, I don't want to be the person washing my clothes in, like, the Wolfscat oh, washer. No. Right? Did so, they
2: buy one just for this? Did they maybe, maybe get I one? a used like, one. They, maybe? Maybe you used one. There's ones that you can, like, attach into a sink now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, we.
2: But also I mean, TMI.
1: But like when I when I had a baby at home, we were washing reusable diapers in the washing machine. So yeah,
2: but also, it, you know, like, it, why are they it just washing seems it a bit in much. the washing machine?
1: Ah, uh, because they're they're trying to, I think, wash away. Microscopic organic matter, so they're just left with the seeds. Because what they're really looking at is uh, how okay. many blueberry seeds were in the scat. So that gets to why they're washing them and washing them in nylons. They wanted to be only left with seeds, so they could do some counting. Okay. At first, when I heard about this, I figured someone had to, some poor person had to sit there and count all the seeds. And each mm-hmm. blueberry has around fourteen seeds in it, and they're very tiny. Uh, so yeah, it turns out they did not do that. They worked out this whole grid method of spreading mm. them out and then aver- averaging it and counting like a s- selecting a sample size from certain grids and then estimating how many was in the whole pile. Okay. Um so um that explains a lot was, though
0: because I yeah. I was thinking there was not going to be a lot left of the scat by the time it went through the boiling and they, the Yeah, they didn't and want right. a lot left. Yeah. Fact, yeah. Right? Yeah, they just wanted the seeds.
1: So, like I said, they did they ended up not counting every single seed. Um uh, but and because you know they have, there's 14 seeds per berry, and the wolves had just gorged themselves on berries. But they use this estimation technique to find out how much they were eating. And the big reason they were doing this is so that future researchers can now use their numbers when counting scat piles instead of having to do the dirty work and befouling more washing machines and kitchen pots. Right. So they're trying to establish like a baseline for other future research. <laughs> um, so I, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. It's really just that. Uh, I find it fascinating that, that, to learn that this animal that we think of as such, like a an apex predator, right, and like so it's so much like a carnivorous animal. People use it as the their prime example of like this is the carnivorous you know beastie out there in the woods. It is the
2: big. And bad wolf. out,
1: yeah, the big bad wolf, right? And it turns out in the in the summer they're pretty much just content to sit around chewing, chowing down on berries. Uh, now berries are not as calorically dense as meat. So they probably do need to eat a little bit more of them. But also they're not really expending virtually any energy to get the berries. They just Mm -hmm. walk to the berry patch and eat them and frankly probably poop out the seeds there. So the berry patch grows even bigger. Uh, So it's like, you know, they they spend very little energy getting this food source. And it's also incidentally a favorite food source of their pups. They're like actually feed uh, kind of regurgitating it and stuff for their pups. Uh, So it's what a lot of the pups are eating when they're young. Um, so I guess basically next time you're reading a grim fairy tale and there's a suspicious red liquid dripping off the teeth of the big bad wolf, just remember if it's July or August, there's a good chance it's just like raspberry jam. <laughs> Beautiful. Right?
2: I love that's that.
1: Good. Yeah. So that's that's what I have for you this week. The fact that uh, wolves are actually gorging themselves a probably more than half of their diet in July and August uh, is is berries.
2: That's so wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Kirk.
1: Sure thing. We're going to go to break. When we come back, it'll be Rachel.
2: Woo! Welcome back, everyone. Um, Hope you had a nice break. Uh, No, it was lovely. Fabulous. Um, So I did the math and... um, this episode actually comes out is our first episode of June this year. So I decided yeah. to happy do Happy June. Happy June. I decided to do something of a theme this month, um, of everything or anything rainbow for Pride Month. Oh yeah. Yay.
1: All yeah. right, cool.
2: Great. Um so let's talk
1: about rainbows talk
2: about rainbows uh but to start us off uh i wanted to talk about this it's been on my list forever and i'm honestly surprised we haven't talked about it yet um i'm talking about a creature that's not only brightly colored and has crazy adaptations but can see more colors than we can
1: Oh uh, yeah, it's on my list. Uh-huh. I just hadn't gotten to it. <laughs> <laughs> we know, we know exactly. Uh-huh. I wonder how many listeners like when we do that and they are like, "Oh, I know what you're gonna see it." If they know mm-hmm. where we're going, or if they're like, well, "How do they know what they're talking about?" <laughs> Go for
2: it. Uh, so today I'm talking about the Odontodactylus scolaris or the peacock mantis shrimp.
1: Yeah. 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 So cool! Uh, Look Uh, it up. Check out our social media account, or uh, check out the photos online.
2: Yes, Uh, I will be. And we
1: probably don't even see how beautiful it truly is.
2: We don't actually, and I'm going to talk about it. Um, Sweet. So generally, uh, the peacock mantis shrimp is found in the Indian or and Pacific Oceans. It likes really nice warm waters in like the shallows and like reefs. Uh, Loves being in the sand, Um, and this. Two to seven inch long critter is just nuts. Okay. (laughs) Um, First of all, just a riot of color. Like it's exoskeleton is very brightly colored. The females tend to be more red in coloration, but the males often have bright blues and reds and greens and there's yellows. um, And they are shaped like a shrimp. So in your head, maybe think like a lobster If you don't know what a real-life shrimp looks like, not the shrimp cocktail that you might get. Um, Think of like a lobster, but smaller. Um, They have a really long uh, abdomen um, and it's pretty segmented. And they have at the bottom of that abdomen, nor more where like it hits the ground, uh, are these uh, like furry looking legs Uh, Some of the pictures (laughs) that I saw, like it's bright blue and then surrounding that furry bit um, is, to be clear, not actually fur, but is like a deep, like very deep red, um, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, personally speaking, uh, you would think, uh, or I would think that the color would hurt the animal. Uh, Like, why would you evolved to be that brightly colored uh you think that would lead to having more predators eat them because there are animals that do eat the mantis shrimp so it's like it kind of goes against uh so it it would hurt from a predatory
1: standpoint not like oh my god these colors are so painful standpoint exactly just to clarify okay good
2: yes um but they do actually burrow down in like u shaped burrows in the sand. those tend to be where they are, so it helps protect them, but also, okay, they're pretty fierce um uh they uh yeah they are, yeah, so they pack a punch um they how they hunt, they are active predators, uh they eat other things like other mollusks like crab and um. Oysters and things like that. Not necessarily uh, oysters. Crabs
0: and shrimp or crustaceans.
2: Yes. Yes. Yep. But it, it also eats mollusks as well. Yes. Gotcha. Um, it can eat anything that's bigger than it, um, actually, which is. Anything? Okay, not anything. It can eat a lot of things <laughs> sorry. if it tends to be bigger than it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just picture like a blue whale, like, oh crap, it's a mantis shrimp.
2: Run away! <laughs> Run away!
1: It's a big punch. It's not that big.
2: No. Uh, re- okay. Remember, it's like a two to seven inch long creature. Like it's... Right. Uh, yeah. It still packs a punch though. So it has these front appendages that seem to always be like up in a boxer's like um, block. Uh, Like mm-hmm. if you... If, for example, if it was a human, like you're... Um, your fist would be up near your face and your elbows punched, and you'd be holding yourself in, like always ready to like punch or block or whatever
1: yeah, ready for a jab or something yeah
2: exactly um, and these are still brightly colored, but this is the fastest punch on of any living thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is so fast it's about fifty times faster than the blink of an eye um they have Scientists have clocked it at over 50 miles an hour. Wow. It has broken aquarium glass. <laughs> that's just
1: nuts. I've heard that. Yeah, they can actually break the glass of the aquarium. Which, wow.
2: Awful. Because that's like that special pretty it's thick also a glass. Mess. It's a yeah. mess. <laughs> but yeah. Um So and that's hey, you how hope they, that's tempered oh, glass too. You hope. Um hmm. And it's just it's so fast that it I mean, the punch itself will most likely kill the creature uh that mm-hmm. it whatever it's trying to hunt. But it's literally so fast that it creates um its own little air bubbles of sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where there was none, and when those bubbles burst, they actually change the temperature of the water when it's released. Uh, to close to near the sun temperature, like it's really, really hot.
1: <laughs> that is so wild. Yeah. It's so called ca- cavitation when you create bubbles like that. It yeah. is, it's, it's mind boggling. It's
2: just, you're creating, you're, it's punching so fast that it creates a vacuum of sorts. Like it's literally pushing the water at the bottom of the ocean
0: away. It's nuts. <laughs> So wild. It's hard to wrap your mind around it.
1: It really is, you know. Talking about the 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 temperature of the surface of the sun Mm -hmm. from, but I think it's the collapsing of the bubbles that creates the. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like now. Do you remember? Did you read up this? Is this my imagination that it actually creates light as well? Like that, the collapsing of the cavitation that you can see, like a little flash when they do it. If you have the right um, conditions?
2: I think in the right conditions it can. That I didn't could totally see, be a dream I had, so... It might have been. I didn't see anything that mentioned it when I was doing my research. Okay. Um, so we, we talked about all of those things, but I also really want to talk more about its shell, about its exoskeleton, because um, not only uh, are they brightly colored... But mantis shrimp actually have like super complex eyes um, filled with uh, not rods and cones necessarily, but like really Mm -hmm. specialized um, uh, eyes pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, receptor cells. Um, And they are able to view wavelengths outside of the visual light spectrum. Um, And because of this, their uh, exoskeleton actually is even more elaborate looking outside of the visual light spectrum. Like the patterns and such that are on are things that we can't see without special conditions and special light. Um, So this little shrimp can uh, see more than we are able to see, which I think is nuts. Just to think about an animal that... Like, I can't even fathom seeing outside of the visual light spectrum.
1: Yeah, like, what would a different color even... How would your brain right? process like, that? Like, what,
2: yeah. what would it look like to see UV ray or um, radio waves or things like that? What would that even look like, you know?
1: And yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole... I, I may someday do, like, a whole episode on just the entire electromagnetic spectrum because it's it's we just think about the light but there's so much more to it
2: yeah it's just absolutely insane and I can't wrap my brain around it that and I would just want to do something super colorful and they are quite literally called the peacock or the rainbow mantis shrimp so I just want to talk about that today
1: yeah they are cool creature probably one of the most beautiful amazing creatures you'll ever see
2: Mm mm-hmm and I did look
1: it up, yeah. by the way, and it, there, yes. there, there are some things online claiming that there you can see a, there is light that is given off hmm. uh, sometimes, but the, uh, you know, it's it's not that it's the heat, like boiling the water that it's, it's actually, it's, I was reading that it's a um, decrease in the pressure. Like, you know, when you lower hmm. the pressure, water boils at a lower temperature. So like mm-hmm. there, it, that vacuum, like you talked about, that's what's causing the boiling of the little yeah. water. Like uh, that's just, that's so wild. <laughs> I They're, they are mind-blowing.
2: They are. I want to know the pressures that caused it to be like a predator that just punches its prey. You like know? What what made it have it, to
1: have to get that fast? Or what's the you know, versus exactly. slower?
2: Exactly. I it would be really fascinating to find out what that evolutionary pressure was was.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Well, that's all that I have for us today. Um Thanks for listening,
1: and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Any bonus on Thanks, this? everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.